Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Surf and Sales podcast. I'm Scott Lease, here with my good friend and co-host, Richard Harris. And we are brought to you today and every day for the month of May by Salesforce Sales Cloud, Lead411, Vidyard, and Gong.io, the game changer for sales and revenue teams. And we are really happy to be speaking with somebody today that neither one of us know, I don't think. I think this might be the first conversation that we've all had together. Uh, but you might know her from LinkedIn. She's pretty active on there. Megan Mishak, the founder of the Path to Presidents Club and uh, based in New York, I believe. Right, Megan? Yes, I'm based in Brooklyn and I'm currently in Florida. Uh, thanks to COVID, I've been here for about a month. It's beautiful. Wow. Well, there's worse places to be. I'm based in Austin, Texas, and I'm brought to you today from Chico, California. So mm-hmm. two of us are not in our normal place. Richard, what about you? I'm at home. I, you know, well, we rebuilt no our home that I don't need to leave anymore. We, that's that's no fun, Richard. I've, had, I've added the, a fire pit. We've added the, um, you know, bar standard shuffleboard table with sawdust on it and a papa shot yeah. and a big flat screen. So Scott's you basically turned you basically turned your house into a sports bar. We totally did. Like that's okay. been the joke for the last week and a half of like. You know, if I'm so bummed the Warriors lost is like, oh, my God, I was going to sit outside and watch all these games all summer long. So, <laughs> uh, but, but Megan, so, so talk to what is, what is the, the, your, your current role? Like, what is this company that you're doing uh, to get to the, President's Club? Like, the Path to President's Club, Richard. That's the name. The Path to President's I was trying not to shank it, Scott, and just sort of work my way through. But thank you for pointing <laughs> it out. So. Yeah, so I love that that question. And um, I don't know if you have, you likely have some international listeners. So I will also just say um, President's Club typically is um, an incentive trip for sales, right? It's um, usually for the top sales, whether it's based on performance or even just, you know, the the top um, quota attainment, things like that. And what I think for me, it represented very early in my career was sales mastery. I was very ambitious, um, incredibly impatient, and I personally wanted to get to President's Club as quickly as possible. And so I um, I can tell you a little bit about my background, but um, now what I'm doing right now is to help other people, other sellers like me, shorten that path to sales mastery, where they're hitting their numbers, but even more so. They're, they're really the top of their game um, which again represents mastery in both yes performance numbers, but also usually fulfillment and meaning in sales, and um, again like that that aspect of competition and collaboration as well. I want to know more about this impatience that you that you just mentioned. Um, this resonates with me because, as Richard can attest, I'm an extremely impatient person, uh, and I wrestle with this all the time. So. Where does that come from for you? How did, how did that manifest itself in selling and, and leading sales teams and entrepreneurship? Yeah, I started um, sales when I was actually 16 years old. I worked in a surf shop selling bathing suits. All right. And yeah, and in St. Augustine, Florida. And um, I really loved it. I loved helping people. I loved um, even, I would start getting tips selling bathing suits from from women's husbands who were so happy that their wives had found a bathing suit that they actually liked and felt comfortable in. And so when I graduated from college with a sociology degree and no ambition to be a sociologist, then I went back to what I know. 
I started a commission only sales role. And quite frankly, I think that competition, ambition, and um, even impatience came from just scarcity in the beginning. Um, it came from scarcity, but also came from the fact that I just had really big dreams. And for me, sales was not only exciting because I got a paycheck, but I loved the strategy behind it. And I loved how all of the top sellers that were working with me, they always had little tips, tick, uh, tricks and strategies that they would use that made a big difference. I remember like one of the first sales roles I was in that commission only one, um, even one of the top sellers simply kept his finger on the answer um, button from the phone so that when leads came in, we had a lot of inbound leads. He was so the first be, one. So to, first. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And the, the results were insane. I mean, he answered most of the calls until I started sealing that strategy. I had like a pink sticky note on the phone button and it's just like little things like that made a big difference. So I was looking around and the interesting thing is I didn't see as many people like myself that were really curious about those things. I saw a lot of people that would say things like, well, it just takes time. You have to pay your dues. Um, you're still so young. Don't worry about it. And even the people who were succeeding, they just, they didn't even know what they were doing necessarily. They, they said, oh, I just have been doing it for 10 years. I saw a lot of like sink or swim environments. And I will be honest, I personally wasn't one of those sellers who just stepped into the role, figured everything out, felt really comfortable. Um, especially as a woman in sales, I, I think I always had to prove myself as well. Um, I wanted to be the best. I wanted to really change people's minds about what was possible. And so um, that impatience came from a lot of <laughs> extrinsic motivation to prove myself, um, to make money, of course, especially because I was starting like commission only positions. I had yeah. to pay my rent and things. Um, but there also was just one part of my personality I've been exploring a lot lately has been um, really trying to seek validation through sales. And so it's kind of one thing that I'm actually trying to change a little bit, but that impatience did me a lot of good. I did succeed pretty early in my sales career and was able to move through these career paths very quickly. And even now as a consultant, I'm 30 years and I had a lot of imposter syndrome. Um, I'm 30 years old. I had a lot of imposter syndrome when I looked at the consultants out there who had 30 years of experience. Like Richard. Like Richard. <laughs> yeah. Old, old, old dinosaurs like Richard. Yeah. 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 And again, Shout like listening to, to the podcast. For all the 50 year old. <laughs> yeah. But it is it's actually really interesting to um to speak with other people who have had that all of that experience that actually have told me, Megan, especially as sales is changing so much right now, we actually need new perspectives yes. and we need diverse perspectives more than anything. And even the fact that like um, new perspectives can bring a lot of innovation and motivation and, and can really challenge those existing perspectives and complement them very nicely. Okay. I want to, I want to go back to what you said. Uh, well, there were two things, but first I want to go to this, having to prove myself in sales, you know, and I think you said as, as a woman, um, you know, have you gotten past that? Was there a moment where you've gotten past that? Like, and, you know, in that sort of cliche, what would you have told yourself, you know, at 23, now that you know, 
and by the way, you're still really young at 30. Um, so don't, don't feel bad. Um, I, I'm just, yeah, we're, we're just, we're just jealous. We're just right. jealous. <laughs> just too. So. Uh, Yeah. And I do feel really blessed because I have talked to a lot of uh, sales leaders who are like, Megan, you're, you're already coming to a lot of these realizations. But the funny thing is that, you know, Scott, it's funny with this impatience aspect, my impatience almost, um, I, I think it was the reason why I finally came to this huge conclusion because I burnt out. So It was March of 2020, right before quarantine, where I, um, I actually looked back, I was working towards a promotion. I had everything planned out. Um, I knew that I, I think it was like in April or so where it would have been in my, my two year anniversary. And I had also just increased the sales rates by about like 36% within this one, um, target. And that resulted in us almost doubling our sales goal the previous quarter. So I felt in a really strong position. I was involved in every major project. And when I looked back over the last six months, I had actually been working 15 hours a day on average. Um, it was just exhausting. I mean, I was actually at the point where I was crying on the weekends if I, if I had even indulged in a little bit of a personal life, right? And I, I felt very guilty about that. I felt like I should be spending more time on work. I was just, I mean, I know it sounds so ridiculous too, um, to not see that as burnout, but you know, it, it really grew over time. And it just got to this point where I asked for my promotion and I think because it was COVID and, you know, they were stalling a lot of progress and things like that. Um, I got the answer. Well, you need to take on either more responsibility or a team in order to get promoted. We don't just get, I was literally told, we don't just give away promotions every year. And I'm like, listen, give away away for someone who just, you know, had all these incredible measurable impact. Right. So for me, it was such a slap in the face, but it really made me question everything. It made me question, um, even like what that promotion meant to me. It made me question um, why I wanted it so badly and why I was killing myself. If, if it was for the promotion, I wasn't getting that. I wasn't getting respect or validation, all these things. It was such an eye-opening experience for me. So, and, and I actually just broke down, um, at the same time, my father passed away. And so I actually had the opportunity to do a huge self-reflection, both personally, um, and professionally. And, that moment made me realize that I think I was meant for even bigger things. Like I was looking to increase my salary by, you know, 40% or so. And I was working so hard. I was like, this can't be what I'm seeking. I don't want to be working 15 hours and then being told that we don't just give away promotions. So I really reflected on the fact that like, I was working so hard on so many things. I I had so many things that I wasn't doing very well. Uh, And a lot of it was habitual. I would say yes to every project because I was a people pleaser. I worshiped my boss um, because I really saw him as a father figure and I wanted to make him proud and have a good relationship with him. And I, I was, I really like, was doing so many things because I thought I had to, and it was just so unhealthy. 
And so I really just had to stop. Um, and I think I started consulting because I wanted simply more control over the promotion and over those aspects. I think that's also really interesting because a lot of people are starting side hustles right now. And for me, it just started as a way of taking ownership over my, over my um, compensation. But the interesting thing is I, I fell in love with it. And I realized that there were a lot of different paths to my goals as a professional that didn't actually even require 15 years or 15 hours a day in working and, and 15 years more of experience, which I thought you needed as a consultant. And so for me, it has been a great opportunity to really question what is important to me in my professional life. Uh, how can I bring my magic into the world and bring my experience, my perspective to help other people? Really why I got into sales in the first place. And it has allowed me as well to truly make an impact. Um, when I was working in a um, work corporate role, I felt like I had an impact on the immediate people around me. But even through doing this work, I've been able to even contribute to DEI initiatives. Um, I've been able to um, be a coach for mental health in sales. And so it's also bringing things that I really care about into my work. And I see so many more people doing that in COVID. So, so what was your, well, let me ask you this, how hard are you working now? Are you still doing, you know, it's different when it becomes your own business, which is one thing, right? 15 hours a day for your own business is different than 15 hours making somebody else a millionaire. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't feel the same at all. No, I agree. So I'm, I'm curious how you've tried to reestablish some boundaries for yourself to, to stay mentally healthy. Oh, I love this question. And it is one that I've had to ask myself and re-ask constantly over the last six months. Um, and I love this question because I think that more people should start thinking about their careers as a business. So one thing I've had to think about is what are my strengths and weaknesses, not only as a sales trainer, but really as a business owner, you know, how am I managing my finances, my marketing, my sales? And even if if salespeople can start thinking about this, right? We don't think about how am I marketing myself internally? Um, it actually has allowed me to learn so much. And that's what I, I think I was struggling with in my last role. What I always encourage people to do is to think about it. Are you learning? And once that becomes a no, you probably need to make a change in your career. So what I have learned, especially in terms of mental health and boundaries is that it is a continuous process. Um, but by taking myself out, I actually had pretty flexible hours in my last role. Um, I started to work at 10. I, I, I honestly, I was a member of like the 11 PM club at work, very unhealthy, but um, now that I do have a bit more freedom over my role, I'm really think rethinking the way that I work. And this is something I've been doing with salespeople as well. What time do you, you, are you most efficient and effective? When are your energy peaks and troughs? Um, how can you actually organize your day, your tasks, all of those things around, you know, your, your best time to work? Um, but also what are the things that actually support your mental health? And when do you, when are those warning signs when you're actually not supporting your mental health? Right. So for me, I even made a list on my phone. It's 
just called self-care. And it says like, first, how can I tell that I need self-care? Um, and it's a lot of times it's those things that I mentioned, feeling super overwhelmed, feeling so anxious that I can't go to sleep. Um, when I feel really disorganized, when I can't focus, all of those things are warning signs for me. And then my self-care, um, both proactive and reactive, proactive things for me, meditation every day. I feel it if I don't meditate. Um, even setting boundaries with clients. Calendly has been a great tool for me because I can actually determine when people can book time with me and just set boundaries in an actually automated way. Um, but there's also reactive ways. And this is something I've also had to learn. Uh, I think we've all had the, the moment where we have to say no to a project or even a client. And that can be really scary that for the first time. But the interesting thing is that when I started saying no, I saw that people said, okay, that's fine. Thanks for telling me. And it was really eye-opening. I was like, I've just been holding myself to these impossible standards that no one even expects of me and no one expects of themselves as well. Hmm. Go, let's go back to the path to, to President's Club. And, and for people out there who are you know, newer to sales, um, you know, what, what are the, some of the things that they can do in your mind? And what are some of the things that you're coaching people to do to shorten that timeline, accelerate that path? Maybe two, twofold, like how do I hit President's Club earlier in the year? That's one, one stressor. You can hit President's Club in 12 months, or you can hit it in six. Be nice to hit it in six and have the back half of the year, you know, not have that hanging over your head. So there's that part. And, and then there's just the part where like, how do I even figure out how to get good at sales? And how do I, you know, eventually one day become a president's club type, type performer? So how do, how do you, how do you coach people? What are the things you tell them to focus on? Yeah. And this is a really interesting question because, um, it's how I've worked in enablement for the last six years, right? I usually supplement sales management, which focuses so much on performance metrics. And my issue with that is that they're lagging indicators of success, right? People know a lot of times that if you're a good salesperson, you have those numbers memorized. But when I have a salesperson that I'm working with that's saying, Megan, I know I'm not on track to hit my number. And the only thing that that helps with is adding stress to my day. Now I'm, I'm desperate, I'm anxious, I'm stressed, and it's not helping. So the first thing that I do is actually to sit down with sellers and actually look a take a broader look at their performance. For me, performance is actually several buckets. Yes, it is comprehensive performance metrics, not just their quota attainment, but average deal size, um, the average deal length, it's things like conversion rates by stage. All of those numbers can actually give you a really good assessment of um, where they stand. However, there's a lot of other things that go into performance for me. Um, the first is outside of metrics is organizational values, right? Do you work well with the people around you? Because if you don't collaborate well with teams like you know, your legal team, your CX team, all of those things, they can have a big impact on your attainment, um, as well as sales skills and competencies. Do they, do you even know where you stand and even what the core skills and competencies are, 
right? Um, do you know what your top three strengths are, top three areas of focus are? And do you have a plan for developing those skills and also leveraging your strengths? And finally, one thing we don't talk about um, with our reps is personal goals. So many times for me, it's a lot easier to drive and motivate sales reps when we're not just saying, hey, hit your number, but we're asking them, why do you want to hit your number? And why do you want to go above your number? What would be really compelling to you? And I've had so many people give me responses to that question. Like, well, don't tell anyone, but I'm proposing to my girlfriend in six months. And I really want to save for a ring. It doesn't fit in my budget. So I'm going to have to work really hard. Um, or I'm, I'm buying a house or simply I, I really just want to make a splash. And I know this is so crazy. Um, and I know that it, it, a lot of it's never been done before, but I want to hit presidents club in year one. Do you think that you could help me with that? And for me, that's much more compelling to even have the motivation to work towards those goals. Um, especially considering if you're only like tracking towards people making hundred percent of quota. It's almost like pipeline, right? You need typically like three X pipeline or Scott, I think you, you recommend 10 X pipeline, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, why are we thinking about performance in terms of 100% of quota, right? We need to really get the motivation, um, to have reps seeking 200% of quota or 300% of quota. How do you think about, you know, you've, you've led sales teams before, so let's say you have a team of 10, 20, 50, whatever. How do you think about how many of my team should be able to hit quota and how many of them should be able to go to president's club? This is a, a, an interesting topic, I think, um, because I think a lot of people, whether rep or manager, automatically assume everyone should be hitting quota 100%. Otherwise, you're not, you know, you're not a good boss, not a good manager or whatever. But that's not the reality at all. That's for sure. And I, I, so I wonder how you think about about that. You know, I know I know I've talked about this before, um, but I'm really curious to hear your thoughts from the leadership perspective. Like, how many people on your team would you consider hitting quota or hitting Presidents Club? Would you consider like, okay, you did a good job, right? Yeah. And it's a hard question because I feel like with any question in sales, there's so much nuance, right? There's yeah, for sure. ramp times and like even experience levels. And I think the the question is like so many sales quotas are different, right? Sales quota could, uh, it really depends if you're doing a monthly quota or if you're doing a an annual quota, if the quota is the same for every seller. Yeah. And I think it almost poses the question um, or even just like the statement quota is hard. And the thing that I hear from sales reps that I, I would like to highlight is that there is this weird moment in um, kind of this like scale in quota, right? Where so many times we want to um, set it as a realistic pace, right? We want to set quota to a point where people yeah. can actually achieve it. Difficult, However, if, but attainable. Yeah. But also if everyone is attaining quota, which I think sellers would prefer, right? They, I would hear a lot of people being like only, you know, so many people didn't hit quota or weren't even close to it, right? Those two statements are very different. If you have a lot of people that are close to hitting quota, I think that 
it's a pretty good sign, right? But if you have most people actually like hitting 100% of quota, then like that, that is interesting, right? And well, because what often happens is the more people you have hitting quota, the puppeteers above you just move the quota number up and it becomes yeah. that much harder. So it's the, that's the balancing act of it all. And, and as, a, as a sales leader, it took me a long time to, to realize, well, if 70% of my team, 50 to 70% of my team are hitting quota, that's a pretty good job. If more than that are hitting mm-hmm. quota, they're just going to raise the quota on me and everybody underneath me is going to be, you know, frustrated. And if less than 50% of my team is hitting quota, then I got a big, big problem. And that balancing act is a difficult thing to navigate um, when you're not fully in charge. You're just the one in charge of making it happen or not. Yeah. And it does bring up the challenge of competing priorities and interests, correct? Because sales managers, we have the perspective of um, rep sentiment and reps hitting their number has a huge impact on their motivation, on how much they're going to be able to contribute and even their stress levels. Mental health has been a big part of the conversation in the last year in sales. And if we're like there's a a balance between challenging people and making like having that, that goal slide so often that it's never attainable, right? People really like feeling accomplished and hitting their goal. And I think what a lot of sellers don't see is what you're talking about, right? Where those questions from senior level, whether it's like the C-suite or even, um, even investors, right. Where we're presenting to board members and they're like, well, this seems pretty low. Like if we did so well, can't we raise this? And it's a really hard balance, but I also want to break up the, um, one thing that I've had a, a hard time with as a sales trainer is realizing that people learn and work and succeed in very different ways. Um, I'll give you an example. I was working with a a BDR group recently where I always ask them, I I send people a personal goals worksheet on their very first day. And it asks questions like, how do you learn? How would you like to be incentivized? What motivates you? What um, would success look like to you in your first 30, 60, 90 days? And even like this, sometimes it's hard to answer, but what are you looking out? um, What are you looking to accomplish in the next one, three, and five years, if anything? And some people have everything planned out. They're super ambitious. They know what they want. Um, For example, I had two BDRs recently who my last role, we had BDR, senior BDR, and then AE. And when I first joined the organization, um, the promotion from senior BDR to AE was honestly pretty tenure-based. Um, They didn't prepare them very much. So as long as you, they also use the same um, interview for every single person. So a lot of times that would happen is they would just steal the deck from the person who interviewed before them. (laughs) And if you can imagine, right. Over and over the same. If you can imagine. Yeah. (laughs) They like weren't, they, they got into the AE role and they weren't really prepared. Um, so I actually had two BDRs who joined day one. They're like, Megan, I want to be an AE within a year. I know everyone says it's, you know, a year and a half to two years, but how can I, how can I make, again, fast track that path to president's club? And so I was like, okay, we have some assumptions here. We really need to break down. The assumption is you basically go into the senior BDR role and then you just follow whoever, like, you know, as long as you don't mess up the interview, you kind of have a, a shoe in, we're going to break down that. 
And what we did was we started even just preparing them for the role. Once they got into the senior BDR role, we started doing discovery training. I actually helped change the, the interview process. So it was actually more merit-based and readiness-based versus tenure-based. And what's what's changing the interview process around merit-based. And I think that's a great topic because so many sales leaders are, are terrible at interviewing. Um, yeah. As and I, I know I was certainly at that point. So it's actually, I love this question as well, because from my perspective, it's actually pretty easy. Um, so a few things that we did to change this process was we simply listed, well, even before I'll, I'll even highlight a few challenges that we had, which is why I was able to make some changes. So we had a lot of people that um, would interview and they wouldn't know why they didn't get promoted. What I saw happening behind management doors when we were going through the interviews was that when we we're talking about the interviews, it wasn't just on performance metrics and even readiness. There were conversations around um, values, collaborate, you know, how well do they collaborate with people? Even, um, you know, grit was one, how well did they actually do in the interview when they didn't know the answer to a question? Like how well do we think they're going to, um, handle challenges? How resilient but, but, are they? For the sales yeah. leaders, for the sales leaders who are listening, right. What, what are three questions they should be asking in that process better now than they used to be? So I don't think that it actually is always questions. So many times when we ask questions, how would you handle this situation? It's these are salespeople. They're really good at answering questions and selling themselves right. I actually think it's if you it can, if I can turn this question around, three things you can change about your interview process. The first one is make it really hard. Um, so I actually recommend um, in the interview, we would have pretty standard roles that we would role play um, as from the sales leader's perspective. And we knew like this person would ask a really challenging pricing question. This person would throw out some terminology or some technical questions that we knew the sales rep wouldn't know. This other person would um, go down a rabbit hole that would probably knock off the sales rep's um, timeline. And so we actually created a pretty challenging interview and sales call, and that allowed us to actually test some of those things in practice. We didn't want to only see how well they memorized a script, but we wanted to see how they handled tricky sales so, uh, situations. So, mm-hmm. so let me, so you, you come up with these great um, scenarios slash role plays other than how would you handle, right? Which I like, and you, you throw them curveballs, which I really like. What are the kinds of things you're looking for? Because you're really not looking for the answer, right? You're, you're looking for the other. So talk a little bit more about, okay, well, what does grit mean in that situation? What does integrity mean in that situation? Like, what should these leaders who are listening to this go, oh, that's what I should be doing? Yeah. And um, it was interesting because we actually made that pretty measurable, we changed the interview scorecard instead of just saying, how well do they do like these sales skills? Um, We actually broke it down into those three core areas. Yes, performance metrics. And I also, I made it more transparent with the salesperson who was interviewing. I said, this is how you're going to be evaluated. First, performance in your current role. How well are you doing in the BDR role? And you have to make sure you hit that. But then organizational values. We will not 
hire you unless you actually demonstrate curiosity, empathy, and grit. And to answer your question most directly, we actually listed out on the interview scorecard, which most of the sales leaders just kept open during the interview and they were measuring it. And we actually said like, so for curiosity, of course, it was really um, curiosity for us in the interview meant um, during the during the actual role play, how well did they discover? Were they actually really curious? Um, even something that was kind of an interesting take on curiosity was how curious were they about the feedback we gave them at the end of the session? How open to it were they? For empathy, it of course was how well do they work with their peers? We kind of told, knew that a little bit from their current role, but of course it was um, how well do they... Um, even that emotional intelligence piece around the feedback, how well do they work with us? Um, how coachable are they? How, um, how well do their peers feel about, we actually had peer interviews. So how do their peers feel about them joining? And grit, <laughs> this is the easiest one because we really tried to, to um, make them uncomfortable in their role play. And how do you do that? What's like a good... what's a good question to hit somebody with to try to make them uncomfortable not in a not in a weird way in like a professional uncomfort professional discomfort maybe yeah so when I say that these interviews were challenging I mean that like people when I first interviewed people um I just joined interviews to start and they were really nice in there and I was like listen how this is not even standard in sales, right? How many times do you get on a sales call where people disrupt you? They're like, Hey, I'm sorry. Can I, I just, um, can we like move on to the next slide? You know, things like that. So it was really just a conversation. How can we bring up the most common challenges that you see in sales calls and just incorporate them in one interview process, like one role play. So for example, um, even when we're asking about pricing it's on the first call we ask, <laughs> And we don't stop. You know, those clients who are like, hey, I really just, I need to know where this fits into the budget. We just kept asking, kept asking, kept asking. Um, Technical questions. This is ridiculous to admit, but we would actually even throw out a question that sometimes like wasn't even real terminology. So we would know (laughs) that they like, there was no possible way for them to even know the answer. That'd be interesting (laughs) to see there how many people said, you know what, I'm going to have to get back to you on that. I don't know the answer versus people who just tried to spin it and wing it in this yeah. made up super technical kind of. However, That's yeah. Hilarious. However, what you, what you mentioned too, you're like, how do we make them uncomfortable, but also demonstrate empathy ourselves as leaders. So I will tell you that I prepare people going into those interviews for those moments. I'm like, listen, you, we, Our job is to challenge you. These things are coming. So I'm curious, like, these are a few things that could come up. How do you feel about your ability to work through those right now? And I, of course, as a trainer would prepare them. I'm like, these are some ways that you can talk about pricing. Let's practice it. And they're like, whoa, I'm not ready for that. I would be so scared if that happened to me in an interview. So it actually is really easy for me to step in as a trainer and say, let's practice that. Why don't you go practice it with, you know, three peers. And we just set the expectations. And after the interview, the first thing we did was to say, wow, we really challenged you. Thank you for letting us, you know, push you in this moment. Um, what questions do you have for us? What, 
what technical questions did you not know the answer to? And, um, what, how can we help you with things that you struggled with? So it was coming at it from a very empathetic perspective, however, a challenging perspective. Mm. I got, I got a fun question for you and then we'll, we'll move towards wrapping and we want to thank Salesforce, SalesCloud and Gong.io and Vidyard and Lead411, all our wonderful sponsors. My fun question is the Path to Presidents Club. What is your ideal Presidents Club event? Or what's the, the most fun you've had on a, a president's club? Is it, is it a trip somewhere? Is it a trophy? Like what does the ideal president's club look like for you? Yeah, I've been on several president's club trips, um, including my very first one. Um, it was in like February in Florida and I live in Florida and so when I like heard that, I was like, interesting. Um, so <laughs> it's like, actually awesome. really funny. I get to go outside. The, awesome. I, I get to go like an hour away and I know it's going to be really cloudy and ugly out. So this is fun. <laughs> um, but I actually just mentioned that not because I'm, you know, a, a, a sales brat, but it's actually funny because a lot of times it's not necessarily the trip. I don't know about you, but for me, wearing a bikini in front of my boss, not the most exciting um, thing that I could imagine. But what I really love about President's Club trips, um, my favorite three elements are first, just the opportunity to unplug and to actually have like a really big celebration. Um, so many times these top performers are working so hard. Um, and I love that a lot of times it is you know, you plus one, a significant other, your husband, your wife, like the people who have to sacrifice often a lot to, um, yeah, to, to help even you help there. you with that mastery, yeah. to help you yeah. get there. Mm -hmm. um, but two, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that salespeople love working with other people in the organization, like other, other top performers, as well as um, the C-suite. So for me, one meaningful part about President's Cup trips are the opportunity to actually sit across from the like C-level stakeholders in the company, to talk to them, to connect with them, to have yeah. real conversations in a really casual environment. And especially as we have a lot of global organizations, even the top sellers, they could be like different markets, different teams, like different geographies. And so it's also really interesting for them to form more connections and even, you know, share knowledge, share relations, like build relationships. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned trophies. I personally love when, when teams not only give a trophy, but share stories and really um, show people that they are, appreciated, valued, and not only, Hey, you hit your number. This person hit 250% of their quota, but actually sharing things like why you appreciate them. This person not only is a top performer, but they are a mentor to every person in this company. We appreciate you so much. Not only the fact that you work really hard, but that you are the most compassionate person that we know. And so really sharing those moments, like Again, for me, why it hurt so much that I wasn't promoted was because I literally had a lot of measurable success and I felt like I was contributing a lot to the organization. And it was simply such a slap in the face to, to say, we don't just give away promotions. So I think it's really important um, that we as sales 
leaders remember that just giving people a paycheck and a big commission check a lot of times doesn't give them what they need in terms of um, recognition, um, appreciation, and simply meaning in their role. Yeah. What, what, you know, we always turn it around at the end um, as we wrap things up. What, what can we answer for you? What would you like to ask us? Yeah. So I'm curious in terms of learning and sales, um, we talked a lot about, you know, how you can think about learning and even, um, you know, shifts in how we can interview and train people. But I'm curious for you, what should salespeople actually learn and master in 2021? What skills do you think are necessary or how do you think that learning and training will shift? I think it's already started to shift to virtual. I think we've learned that you can't do um, one day trainings um, for eight hours a day uh, not virtually, but even in person. So I think the micro learning sessions, which I've ad- adopted, has been much better for stickiness and follow through. I think that um, the reinforcement piece is coming out more. So if you're hiring someone, it seems like with, with you that you do this is there's this, it's, it's more than just, you know, the four days of training two hours a day, which is what I do, right? Like it's, it's more than that. I, I still have times once a week with the team and the managers separate to keep coaching them. So it becomes a little bit longer of an engagement process. So I think that's, what's going to stick in terms of the execution. Um, and then what should people be learning? I think it's really getting into the tactics and the soft skills, right? It's really getting into understanding more of this human psychology, how humans make decisions, um, you know, way beyond the difference between, you know, open and closed ended questions as, you know, know, one is a single word answer and one is not, um, but really understanding how they work. Um, I think deeper discovery um, is always a thing. So all, which by the way, these are all the things that for nine years that I've been doing this, this is what people hired me for. So it's not anything new. I just think that it's becoming more recognized that this is the problem. Right. They all want to pitch. They all, all those leaders that I talk to, they're like, well, you know, we need to uh, shorten our sales cycle and we need to um, grow bigger deals. I'm like, no, you don't. You need to actually teach people how to get there. Right. Uh, You know, my phrase is how to earn the right to ask questions, which questions to ask and when. That's what people are focusing on now. So trying to think of what Richard left for me to answer. You just, just gave everything away. I think. There's three things though that I didn't hear him say. Um, one, one of which is, is like super practical and that's just copywriting skills. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm shocked and appalled still when I see some of the emails that some of the teams uh, and individuals are writing that, that I work with. They're just super long, tons of jargon, not personalized, not relevant. So just getting better and better at copywriting um, in email, in social, in content you create. So that'll be, no, that'll be number one. Um, the second piece is uh, leadership skills. Um, everybody complains about, you know, their weak sales manager or boss or VP or all this kind of thing. And, and so I think if, you know, these people spend some time before they got into leadership working on how to be a better leader, um, maybe we could emerge with a new generation of sales leadership that 
looks a little bit different, talks a little bit different, is more diverse in background and, and school of thought and personal story and experience and all this kind of stuff. And so maybe we can cycle out the old guard that everybody doesn't love and the new guard coming up um, could improve and kind of level up that whole, that whole profession. And the last thing that I leave, uh, I'll leave you with is, is business acumen. Um, and you, you, know, you mentioned, I'm bringing this up specifically be, because you mentioned how people are starting side hustles and you mentioned learning on your own, you know, marketing and I don't know, accounting, maybe you said, and finance or whatever the, the things are. Um, if you're gonna go into business for yourself, you need to know how to do all of these different things, or if you at least need to know what they are and why they're important. And that way you can put some energy in to get somebody else to work on those things for you or with you. Um, and as a seller, the more you know about terms like, you know, customer acquisition costs and the magic number and, and renewal rate and retention, all these different metrics and acronyms. Um, and Richard and I did a, a show last year with Ray Reich, who talks about this stuff all the time. You really can just level up, you know, and you can have really high level conversations with executives. We were talking about P&Ls and, um, you know, growth expectations, all this kind of stuff. So I, I think it's very underrated. Nobody talks about it. Nobody trains on it. Um, and that's something that I think people have to go out and seek and learn for themselves. So those are the three things that I would, that I'd leave you with. Yeah. And if I can just have, um, just add a, a few things. I love what you said. Um, I, one, one thing that I say, which sometimes is pretty controversial is that scripts breed stupid reps. And let's be real. I do give people scripts. Um, sample questions can be great, but I think so many times over the last few years, we have just thrown technology at sales training and enablement. You know, we have all these tools where we can say, Hey, we've taken the guesswork out of sales. Don't worry, salespeople. All you need to do, like, this is the script. These are the, um, the outreach templates that work the best and maybe just enter, you know, do a, a really quick level of personalization, like their name, maybe some similar clients. And the, the thing is, if we're only relying on scripts as a way to improve sales, we're actually probably taking more from salespeople than we're adding, right? We think that we're adding a lot of efficiency, but what we're taking is their ability to learn why, why those things work, why those things, um, how they're, why they're built the way they are. Um, and one thing that I've been working on and how I work with a lot of organizations is to actually create um, a matrix of all of the sales skills and competencies per role. And I totally agree with you, Scott, that um, when we think about, even from a BDR perspective, I hear so many sales leaders saying, BDRs, they're just too junior to know a lot of these things. I would say that is, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you're treating your B BDRs like they are not strategic and they don't understand business, then they never will. But if you actually have a business acumen within the, one of the core competencies and let them know that it's important, teach them the skills and even go through One way I do that is by going through examples. I do an, a live account scrub with an account research template and actually walk them through how to read a 10K, what you know terms to search for, why that matters. And we're actually constantly practicing that and mapping value. And so I think if we can really 
um, challenge our assumptions about salespeople, different roles in sales teams, and give them the skills to both assess themselves and grow those skills. So even for more of a, as you mentioned, um, a senior salesperson who wants to become a manager, why do we wait until we promote them to even teach them skills? Why can't we even focus on, you know, teaching them um, about what it takes to be a sales manager and also giving them opportunities to take on mentees. It could be even a formal mentorship and to, you know, see how that works, give them some time and space to practice those skills so that it, we don't just set people up for failure. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's, you know, we, we've had a conversation today here with you that where I could have like six more one hour podcasts. So <laughs> it would be good. Um, so this is great. How can people get a hold of you? Obviously LinkedIn, um, uh, it's Megan Mishak for those who aren't, did I say it right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I did a great for job. Um, so what's the easiest way for people to get a hold of you? So LinkedIn is, um, a fantastic way to, to reach me. I'm very active on LinkedIn. I post a lot of free content, a lot of the ideas, um, we've talked about as well. Um, however, if, if we do have sales, you're on the call, who want to take even that sales skills matrix to the next level, um, you may want to connect with me for a virtual coffee. I have a website, www.path2, that's T-O, presidentsclub.com. And you can contact me. Um, there's a, a link for to set up a free virtual coffee where we can even dive into some things that we talked about today. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Megan. It's been fun to get to know you. Um, and I will connect with you on LinkedIn. I, I am not actually connected with you. So. Absolutely. I'm like, what an incredible way of, of just having a first intro call. It's been great to, to get to know both of you. All right. Take yeah, care. Thanks so much, Megan. Thank you.